Welcome to the 317th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. This week, I will be the guest host of COVID, COVID Calls, while the program's founder and host, Dr. Scott Knowles, takes a much needed recharge. My focus in the history of public health is on the field of epidemiology, a science unfolding in real time during the COVID-19 pandemic. This week on COVID Calls, I'll be speaking with some incredible scholars who in some way work in the field of epidemiology. Today, I'll be chatting with Lucas Engelman, one of the leading historians of public health and epidemiology. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. To find the program, go to COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID Calls, or my own at Steer Williams, or Scott's at US of Disaster. Please help spread the word about COVID calls and feel free to send suggestions for guests, future topics to either myself at Steer Williams or Scott Knowles at US of Disaster. As of today, August 9th, 2021, there have been 4,299,016 deaths from COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Research Center. The JHU Research Resource Center reports today that 51% of the U.S. population has been vaccinated against COVID-19, compared to 59% of the population of the U.K. and 55% of Germany's population, to give you some comparison. As a way to humanize those numbers, I will each day this week read a real-life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. That's something that Scott has been doing from the outset of COVID calls, and it's been a powerful reminder for me as a listener of COVID calls of the ways that pandemics strike populations, but we experience them as individuals in individual communities. I'll start this week from a story from where I live in Charleston, South Carolina, with a headline, as COVID-19 cases rise, hospital workers and their patients enter a grim new reality, which was written by journalist Jennifer Hawes in the Post and Courier, just three days ago, August 6th, 2021. Dr. Kent Scott dashes into a hospital unit for patients who are coming and going from intensive care. It's 10 patient rooms wrapped like a horseshoe around a cramped nurse's station are full this morning, their doors closed. Every patient inside is COVID-19. A week ago, the unit had only three. Bon Secours France St. Francis is not one of the first hospitals within its larger system to get COVID-19 patients. When they come here, it means the others are filling. Stock, an infectious disease doctor and COVID-19 point man, stands outside a patient room to begin the morning's rounds with a team of mass doctors, nurses, and respiratory therapists. It's August 5th, a Thursday. In room 211, an otherwise healthy 69-year-old was admitted the previous day. He is unvaccinated. Next door, an 84-year-old man was admitted Tuesday. His wife, daughter, and daughter-in-law all tested positive. He is unvaccinated. Nearby, a 61-year-old is maxed out on the oxygen he can get without going into a ventilator. He caught the virus from a friend. His friend is fine. He is not. 
His friend got a vaccine. He did not. He's struggling, Dr. Stock says. As the team moves along, they discuss how the Delta variant is propelling a wave of patients who don't look like the previous ones. Delta is more aggressive and more virulent, and it's striking younger, healthier people. Stock says he has seen more COVID-19 patients in the 40 to 65-year-old range, including those who die. Across town in a lab at the Medical University of South Carolina, researchers have been testing positive cases to see what variants are showing up. Delta, which appeared in their data in mid-June, now accounts for more than 92% of all positive cases. At the bedside, Stock says, we are definitely dealing with a different animal. Yet this unit did not did send a patient home this week. She was 80, had cancer, and was on chemotherapy, a prototype of whom, of whom COVID-19 used to kill. The difference, she's vaccinated. In room 215, a corner room, Brendan Langley is not. Before entering Langley's room, nurse Kristen Moody wraps herself in seemingly every form of plastic and latex, then slips inside quickly. The room is cramped the window hazy with humidity. The Golden Girls plays on the TV as the 69-year-old patient lies on her stomach to help expand her lungs, her lung function. Although her family and boss reach out often, she spends the long hours of every day feeling scared and lonely. Amanda Snipes, respiratory therapist, arrives to examine a high-flow nasal tube that delivers substantial amounts of oxygen, which so far is keeping her off a ventilator. Going on one is Langley's biggest fear, aside from dying. I'm not going to give into this, she says. I'm going to whip it. Then she adds, and then I'm going to get the vaccine. Langley arrived here three days ago after languishing all weekend in the emergency department at Roper St. Francis Berkeley Hospital in Somerville. Beds for COVID-19 patients had become very suddenly full. On Sunday, while she waited for one, Governor Henry McMaster went on Fox News. He called COVID-19 concerns an exaggeration. I believe a lot of our national experts are engaging in frightening hyperbole, McMaster said. He acknowledged that rates were rising, but assured the house is not on fire again. The governor urged vaccinations, adding that they aren't for everyone. Langley had thought the same thing. Throughout the pandemic, the Somerville resident worked full-time at Publix. She figured that if she hadn't gotten COVID-19 yet, after all those months on the front line of a grocery store, she was pretty safe. She also has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, an autoimmune disorder, and worried the vaccine side effects might be worse than catching the virus. Her doctor highly recommended getting the vaccine, but Langley procrastinated. About a week ago, she started sneezing, then coughing. After testing positive, she arrived at St. Francis with a diagnosis of pneumonia. She tells Moody, her nurse, that she's now urging everyone she knows to get a vaccine and plan want, plans to get one herself. Hopefully we won't grow tails, she laughs and coughs. Moody smiles back. I haven't yet. For medical workers like her, it's hard to hide the frustration. Langley is like so many in this new surge of cases. They arrive unvaccinated, get very sick, and then become vaccine champions. Much convincing remains. South Carolina ranks 46th in the nation for vaccinations. In the Tri-County area, which feeds patients to St. Francis, only 43% of residents are fully vaccinated, and that doesn't include children under 12 who are not eligible. Langley tears up explaining the vulnerability, the fear of death, the shock at being here fighting COVID-19. Put the fear away and trust the system, she says. 
trust God that he is in control and he gave us medicine for a reason. He gave us this vaccine. As her voice quivers, Moody sets a hand onto hers, a reassuring gesture, one wrapped in two layers of purple latex. Across the country, new daily hospital admissions for COVID-19 patients shot up over 40% over the past week to more than 7,700 new patients a day, according to the CDC. Those big numbers become real, individual people in local hospitals. Over the past two weeks, the Roper St. Francis, Francis healthcare system went from 25 to 65 patients with COVID-19. Now let me turn to my guest today. Dr. Lucas Engelman is a Chancellor's Fellow and single senior lecturer of history and biomedicine at the University of Edinburgh. He is a historian of medicine and epidemiology and has worked extensively on the history of HIV AIDS and the third plague pandemic. His current project, funded by a four-year ERC grant, is titled The Epidemiological Revolution, A History of Epidemiological Reason, Reasoning in the 20th Century. You can find the project website by Googling the epidemi and the active Twitter handle at epidemierc. Lucas is the author of two books, Mapping AIDS with Cambridge University Press in 2018, and another co-authored with Christos Linteris, who appeared on COVID calls with Scott and Graham Mooney on September 8th, so check out the archives, a book called Sulfuric Utopias, published in 2020 with MIT. Sulfuric Utopias is an incredible, incredible book that I highly recommend that examines the history of fumigation and maritime sanitation and was recently listed by The Guardian as one of 30 books to read to understand the world in 2020. Lucas, throughout this week during my time guest hosting COVID calls, I want to take a deep dive with a bunch of incredible experts like yourself into the field of epidemiology. And it's fitting that I'm starting with you today, as there's probably no other scholar better equipped to answer the important questions about epidemiology's complicated history from the late 19th to the early 20th century than you. Let me start with a basic question. Where are you calling from today and what is the pandemic situation there? Thanks, Jacob. <clears throat> and thanks for this very kind and humbling introduction. And it's an absolute pleasure being on this show, which I very much admired and followed along through the pandemic and can't believe we're in the second year of all of this. Um, I'm calling in from Scotland, Edinburgh in Scotland. And today is not Freedom Day in Scotland. That's what it has become called in the press. Um, but it is the day where all remaining restrictions, except for a few, have been lifted by the Scottish government. To everyone who might not be familiar with the situation in the UK, all health matters, including pandemic matters, are devolved matters. So they are being governed by the um, governments in Scotland, Wales, England, and Northern Ireland separately. And so Scotland did not follow the um, English uh, fanfare into Freedom Day, I believe two or three weeks ago, but kept some of the restrictions in place, particularly for, for gatherings and opening nightclubs. But now we have a level of almost zero restrictions. We still have a mask mandate for indoor, for shopping. We still have a recommendation to work from home where possible. But we um, are now moving into a phase in which the epidemic is framed to be still around. But 
at a level where we are cautiously optimistic about the next few weeks as weeks where we might see indeed uh, a, a lowering of both case numbers as well as hospitalization numbers. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for that. You know, it's it's interesting to me from an epidemiological standpoint and in, in following the, the daily changes in epidemiology, just comparing where the UK was four weeks ago now with where the US is. And, you know, so much of epidemiology, as I want to talk more with you about today, has been predicated um, on epidemiological modeling. And I think, you know, I've been hearing a lot of hope from epidemiologists in the U.S. that are saying, yes, Delta is surging in the U.S., but if we take the modeling from the U.K., um, maybe in eight weeks um, or some other magical number that cases will, yes, rise quickly, but then like in the U.K., they will start to plummet quickly as well. Um, I want to ask you a question um, that has to do with, with historical memory. So as, as historians of, of pandemics and epidemiology, I, I know I certainly am fascinated and I want to hear your thoughts um, with, with this notion of historical memory that maybe we can already start to talk about. Um, what are your earliest recollections of COVID-19 in, in late 2019 and early 2020 of how the, the pandemic began and how has that origin story changed in the last 18 months? That's a it's a great question, and I think one one thing that 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 immediately jumps to my mind is that that I feel slowly to 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 move into the kind of place where where it starts to make sense to think historically about this very pandemic, yeah, to to really develop a better understanding of the contours of its different phases and its different episodes and waves, yeah, to use a modeling term. Um, but I think. Looking back to to the end of 2019 and the early months of 2020, I think two things come to my mind there, there that are that are uh, quite interesting. And I think one one thing is is the 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 level of of ignorance that that was abundant, and not just in governments, and not just in 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 particular uh, um, um, ignorant governments, but the level of ignorance also, I think, like throughout December, January, and February, probably due to my interest in this field that kind of like predates this pandemic, I've been to a couple of events where where we were where we were talking about the subject of pandemics and epidemics in at large. It was events talking about different kind of approaches, interdisciplinarity, and pandemic security, whatever, and not even in those circles. I felt was a sense of 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 really thinking seriously about the possibility of what might lie ahead, you know? and that that always struck me looking back that that even among those who might be best might have been best equipped understanding what this pandemic might be, and what this what this or what this outbreak might be in terms of its potential to becoming a pandemic, could that knowledge translate into a sense of um severity yeah and that i think is is this this striking feeling that i i i i would describe when looking back particularly the months of january and then also also some way into february i think to many the the turning point in the uk the turning point in germany was slowly the panic level started to rise was when the outbreaks in italy happened yeah? 
Mm-hmm. We, can, we, we saw that there is devastation happening that cannot be easily explained away. You know? yeah. And that, that really was an interesting turning point. The other thing I would, would add is that I've been actually involved in quite an interesting um, little project with some colleagues here at the University of Edinburgh with um, Kath Montgomery, Steve Sturdy, and Christina Moreno. We've been um, looking at modeling and we've been looking at the media representation of modeling, particularly in those months, January, February, all the way up to March. And hopefully a publication on that will come out quite soon. But it's, it's really amazing to look back into the newspaper, look, to have a systematic look back at the newspaper coverage in those months and see how much speculation, but also how much hesitation was there to take this serious and to give this the kind of credence that it then retrospectively kind of like deserved. And so there is really like a lot to say, I think, about these first few months as months in which we, which deserve a lot of scrutiny, thinking about how did this develop in that way and why did come action so late in so many places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in, in some really, you know, corollary historical examples come to mind that I think are are bread and butter routine examples that historians of disease and medicine just regularly teach with. And so, you know, for example, you know, there are these 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 great images of of the medieval Black Death and seeing the different ports and where it first arrived and then hearing first and reading firsthand accounts from from manuscript sources of plague moving from one port in the Mediterranean to the next or, you know, uh, looking at you know cholera in the 19th century, and there are these great newspaper reports that that happen in 18 in the early 1830s when cholera is in Europe exploding, and Americans you know in the newspapers just say it's 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 probably not going to hit us. Um, looking across the ocean, um, let alone you know 1918 in the kind of you know we look back and see distinct waves of the disease, but if you read the folks that were living in real time, um, that they, they experienced. Uh, that influenza pandemic very differently, and 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 that's a you know that's something that I think is easy to teach with 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 historical hindsight and retrospective analysis, and then even like you mentioned, folks like you and I who who've, who've spent our careers studying this in the past, now all of a sudden to be living through it is is a very different kind of uh, a reality, and and you know I I I've been describing this, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts with with family members you know not non-academics in that you know i had once like you have experienced this pandemic as just a person as a father as a partner as a member of my community and 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 that's something that we collectively have experienced as individuals but then there's this other janus face side of experience a pandemic as a as a scholar of pandemics that is i think made me walk through this 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 pandemic experience in, in a different sort of way and and see it in a different way and and I too have sort of struggled with with that dual reality of ex- experiential you know knowledge of of this pandemic I think that's it's an it's an interesting point because because you you of course also have this this level of 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 expectation of a kind of historical comparison that is built in and I think I went, I can, I can honestly say I went through the first few months and, and felt like, like, 
I felt very um, stinted or very, very hesitant to, to provide any kind of historical um, comparison or to, to engage with that kind of knowledge that I had about, like, I mean, yes, that worked a lot on HIV and AIDS, and there's a lot that one could think about, and there's a lot of been, also a few very clever things have been written to, to think through the kind of similarities and discontinuities between AIDS, the last big pandemic, you know, and this uh, um, uh, respiratory disease pandemic, which is quite a different animal in many different ways. But of course, also with, with hindsight and thinking about the third plague pandemic, again, I felt like there were so many aspects of this pandemic that were so, so, so radically different. And where I often felt like my only, my only job that I can do in, in kind of like adjusting to that is to, to try to observe in a way that, 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 that keeps a record or maintaining some kind of record of what is happening, what's going on, and then trying to get back to that at some point when things start to make sense of it. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like a, um, there's a, there's a project out there for a grad student um, sometime, ho hopefully pretty soon to be able to analyze the history of the history. So to see what did historians of pandemics say in between January and March, what were the, cause I mean, as you know, it was, it was 1918, 99 influenza. That was yeah. the big comparison that people, the knee jerk reaction that, a lot of folks wanted to turn to. And then as the pandemic has unfolded, we've looked to, to polio, to HIV AIDS, to plague. We've, we've, we've drawn historical corollaries as the pandemic has unfolded in different ways. And, and that should tell us something very important about our own field in, in, a, in a kind of meta observational way. It's, it's really fascinating. And I think, I think it throws us also back into the question, I think that, 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 we're both very interested in what is what is the framework that keeps all of that together yeah so on the one hand you have the disease biographies you have the kind of like the histories of of all these the, the, the menaces of mankind you know you have this kind of these very strong narrative conventions of thinking about the history of plague as a distinct history from the history of cholera as a distinct history from the history of typhoid fever you know so but so what do we what do we make, how do we make sense of the kind of knowledge systems or the kind of ways of understanding of pandemics and epidemics that are supposed to bring all of these different narratives together yeah? and that are supposed to bring all of them into some kind of objects of knowledge or to make them into research objects or to make them something that can be observed, predicted, forecast, now casted. Yeah? So that's the thing that I really started to, to think about a lot and where, where I guess this pandemic helped a lot to rephrase lots of the questions that I had already set in my application for my grant. Yeah? And to, to really look at them with a lot more um, scrutiny, I think. Scrutiny is the kind of like, what is, what is happening here in the terms of how is knowledge produced about a pandemic and what is the knowledge that sticks? Yeah? Yeah. These were questions that I found really, really interesting looking through this or through, looking through these events unfolding. Yeah, yeah no, that's great. Um,
too have been sort of recalculating um, sort of as we go and experience the pandemic, the kind of research questions for my own, you know, current projects and, and then also rethinking um, past projects and how I might've written, you know, an afterword or a conclusion for, for, for my book um, now and how that would be radically different than when I did write it um, right before the pandemic um, began. I want to, um, I want to ask you about uh, and, and dive into really the history of epidemiology here by starting with something that, um, that hi- historians are familiar with and that in the specifically in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, although it certainly hasn't gone away, has been central to popular and, and public discourses around the field of epidemiology, and that being origin stories. And there's a there's a there's a there's a long history here of within the field of epidemiology from at least the, the late 19th century when we see a, a kind of emergence of a nascent field, but we could go back earlier than that, of epidemiologists studying a pandemic or an epidemic and, and searching for an origin, searching for the beginning of, of, of that disease event. And, and I wonder um, if you can speak a little bit, I mean, you've researched plague, HIV, AIDS, um, 19th, 20th century epidemiology, why is the field of epidemiology so bent on on an origin? And and then maybe what um, if you could speak to it? Are there any detriments to the field of epidemiology to to, to thinking about the field and defining epidemic moments through these origins? <clears throat> okay, that, that, that's that's quite a few, few things to cover. So let's <laughs> let's get right into it. <laughs> I think. The, the first thing is, I think, as almost like a preamble, the, the searching for an origin of a pandemic or an epidemic is, is, is almost absurd. You know? I think there is this very, and I guess I'm, I'm siding here with a certain certain Foucauldian, yeah, Nietzscheanian um, 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 perspective onto origin or in German Ursprung. Yeah? The, the kind of there is something into to believe that there is an original scene yeah, or a primal scene that once we uncover that, it will reveal the essence of this thing that is happening to us. And everything that happened ever since this original scene all the way to what's happening right now and all its complexity and diversity will suddenly make sense. Yeah? And I think that's to me always, always absolutely stunning that there are still so many people out there who have this who have this 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 assumption about about finding the origin of a pandemic, yeah? which is an enormously complex field of 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 events, processes of all kinds of different flavors, socially, naturally, culturally, yeah? that intersect and interact in that. That to find an origin will kind of add a key aspect of knowledge to that that will somehow change everything we know about this that that really is fascinating and it's 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 a fascinating i think drive that we see in 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 epidemiological reasoning uh throughout as you said since the 19th century but all the way to 20th century i i i think it's important to to put also out there's like for most pandemics that we know in the history of humankind the origins are shrouded yeah they are not it's not like COVID-19 is the missing piece yeah, and everything else has been kind of like absolutely understood. It's also important to say that every decade or two, kind of like the idea of what constitutes an origin changes drastically and radically 
Today, many in the biomedical sciences will tell you that an origin is defined by the earliest archaeological findings of DNA matter that can be associated with the pathogen to, to a disease. Yeah? Others will tell you that an origin always has to be understood as a kind of like first significant economic impact of an, of an, of an epidemic on some kind of social uh, um, structure that we might understand as early parts of civilization or so. Yeah? So you have these different settings, different scenes, different concepts, but still it remains a kind of incredibly important fantasy, I would say, yeah, that finding the origin is something that allows us to understand and identify the pandemic. If we, if we want to take a crude psychoanalytic view on that, yeah, you could say that's almost like a reversal at work there. It's kind of like because pandemics and epidemics are so complex, because they are so constantly evading a clear boundary, because we cannot really use one set of knowledge tools like DNA technology to make sense of a pandemic, the desire is even stronger to find some kind of, of, of original um, or primal scene. But, but I think... There's also another side to that, and that I think is the is that that the origin works probably in many cases as a kind of metaphor to to negotiate the kind of the, the, the dominant frame of the pandemic. Yeah? And I would dive briefly into kind of like the different origin stories of HIV/AIDS that were kind of present at different places. And I think when we start in the mid 1980s, we have these origin story stories of HIV-AIDS that begin to develop an understanding of HIV emerging from Central Africa, which then initially becomes kind of associated with questions of how is this, this virus, to what extent has this virus existed in Africa for longer? This is kind of like, this is associated with certain, certain uh, um, social, cultural stereotypes that we can adopt and apply to what some epidemiologists or virologists, most of the time virologists, believe African cultures are yeah, or what they do. So the questions of, of, of how HIV emerged then from, from, from a species crossing became heavily culturalized, heavily um, associated with a lot of racist tropes. Mm -hmm. were adopted to that, but it became this kind of framework that was incredibly important in the late 1980s to get rid of the idea of AIDS to be an American disease, you know? right. to get rid of the idea of AIDS to be something that is predominantly associated with a certain framework that had been established in the first five, six years of this pandemic around kind of homosexual communities you know, in, the, in the United States and then later also in Europe and other places. And so you can see how the origin story there is pitted against against something very different. Yeah? And it's almost a, a way of playing these out against each other. Now we move forward yeah, 20, 30 years, and the origin story about AIDS in Africa has radically changed. Yeah? And it's mm -hmm. not anymore told as this kind of really awful cultural trope, but it's now kind of Jacques Pepin wrote a book, The Origin of AIDS. I think it's I guess it's the kind of standard narrative that has been... It's now been, been kind of uh, worked um, on by many in many uh, controversial ways, but it's the kind of standard narrative of how like almost like a deep history of HIV going all the way back to quite early uh, um, scenes in which HIV um, might have crossed species, but 
the work that Pepin is doing is moving strategically away from the species crossing. It's actually not an important question. It happens all the time. It's not really interesting. The interesting point is like, where do we get the critical spillover event, if you want to use mm -hmm. the last term for that? Yeah, Where do we get the critical event where HIV or a distant or an ancient strain of HIV, not ancient in the antiquity kind of word, but in the molecular clock kind of sense, yeah, or phylogenetic kind of sense, how, how a distant stain, strain of HIV crossed into human society. And then, rather remarkably, this book ends on a kind of more or less speculative, but also quite convincing story about how HIV was introduced through a colonial panic event in, in, in Belgian governed, mm. um, Leopoldsville today, today's, um, um, uh, Kinshasa, yeah? yeah, where, where there was a fright about the syphilis epidemic and all, uh, women, all free women, yeah, prostitutes or sex workers, um, were, 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 had to be treated against syphilis. And doctors complained that the 200, 300,000 people they treated, they didn't have the time to sterilize anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so with all the things he put together, he puts this kind of moment of colonial panic in the 1920s as now an origin narrative of HIV AIDS. And I think it just shows you that how, how mutable it is, how mobile it is. Yeah. These kind of origin narratives, but that they always, echo and resolve some other concerns that are circulating in the pandemic or in an epidemic. Yeah. And I think, you know, a couple of things that you've, you've sort of highlighted there for me and it had me thinking is that origin stories and epidemiology, they function both at the level of epidemiological discourse. What are the epidemiologists concerned about and, and what are the competing origin stories within the field of practicing epidemiologists. And I think, you know, we, we could say there certainly are cultural reasons that epidemiologists at any given time search for origin stories, sure. Um, but there's also some practical questions, right? I think because of the, 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 the biological and ecological complexities of, of disease events, that, that epidemiologists search for ways to bound in time and space epidemic moments, right, within within their actual just working practices. And I think, you know, that makes sense at the level of like what one team of researchers is doing in one particular study, which is, you know, often just the reality of how epidemiologists work and are funded. Um, but but what you're pointing to here is is that there's another level of origin stories that is a, a sort of deeper cultural one, that there is a, a, a want on the part of uh, you know, a, a more general populace for making sense of an epidemic or a pandemic and then pointing to some version of the science or often some version of, 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 of not so um, much science of where this, this thing, this disease that has a name now, um, where did it come from and where did it begin? And, you know, so often in the history of pandemics, I think every, anyone who teaches a class on the history of pandemics can give you, you know, uh, these stories from, from every single one of them in the last 500 years is their, their escape narratives, you know, their origin stories become points of blame for, and they become these galvanizing moments for how to explain where this, where's the, this, this biological thing came from. Um, so I think, you know, I think one thing that you get me thinking about going forward with COVID-19, because we've heard 
already in the last 18 months, a number of origin stories and origin myths of, of the novel coronavirus. Was this a spillover? Where did this mutation come from? Was it uh, you know, a so-called, this, this phrase that the West loves to talk about, a wet market, um, which itself is a kind of racializing term? Um, is it, was it created in some laboratory, which is still a popular myth that you see you know, in the US? Um, and, and, and what you get me thinking about is we should be paying attention, those of us interested in, in the history of epidemiology, to as the, as the COVID-19 pandemic continues, how, how do scientists and how, how do the general public change what they say was the origin of this, this pandemic? Yeah, or, or, or change which of the origin narratives might matter. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a really nice way to, to put it, to, to, to look at the kind of the, the shifting ways in which, in which scientists, but also society demands for origin stories, but also how those shift from one scene to another. And shift from the questions of, of the wet market with all its uh, ballast to the question of the laboratory with all its fantasies of a kind of manufactured pandemic. You know? Yeah. And, and I think what would be really helpful sometimes is, is to, to have a, what would be really helpful sometimes would be to have, to have a much more, um, much more open-mindedness towards kind of like the multiple beginnings of pandemics. Yeah? And to think through a pandemic like COVID-19 as one that is constantly beginning in new forms and new ways. And there are a cascade of origin, origin stories, if you want. Yeah? Well, these cascade of origin stories are governed by so many random stuff yeah? that is happening and that is structuring them yeah? that you get to a kind of level of... of, of uh, um, I wouldn't say say relativism towards them, you know, but you get to a level of where you where you really have to be careful when you put credence to one of the origin stories because you will necessarily kind of like put others into the shadow, you know, yeah. and that's really difficult. I think like like it's it's a bit, bit banal, but like if the more we focus on the wet market, the less we we focus on kind of like certain questions like the world economic market and situation or something. You know? Climate change, sorry, or climate change. Yes, exactly. Yeah, or the more we focus on, on on certain laboratory and Chinese conspiracies, we forget about certain certain ignorances and absolutely failed preparedness programs that have been established in the West. Yeah. And and so I think there is there is something there to to really pay attention of how these questions are phrased and what kind of interests seem to be driving people to 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 focus on certain origin narratives. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, another thing you highlight there, because um, I don't, I don't want to quite move on yet because I'm, I'm so enthralled by this, by this question, because it's so, it is, it's so complicated, um, is, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've been seeing in, in, in both virology and in ID communities and in epidemiology communities worldwide is like this amazing, I mean, we're witnessing real history of epidemiology right now. And what I mean by that is the epidemiology is changing daily, weekly on COVID-19. And I think we've seen an, an incredible amount of novel, cool, innovative research and research techniques for understanding the incidence of COVID-19 worldwide, 
the way in which health disparities impact um, the incidence and the spread worldwide, um, the emergence and the, the change of new variants and mutations and different susceptibilities. You know, right now we're all of a sudden thrown into this question of is Delta Plus much more virulent to children under the age of 12 that can't be vaccinated? And like the science is unfolding very, very quickly on that. And there's a way in which like my history of epidemiology had is like, this is amazingly cool. But then I I keep that hat on and I'm like, that science is is not being communicated very effectively. And I think there's still this real failure in some ways of epidemiologists and public health specialists who speak for epidemiologists, and we could talk about that problem in and of itself, um, for communicating to the general public that we're dealing with a a, a pandemic and, and now an endemic disease that is still rapidly changing. The thing that we called COVID-19 last January is not the same thing that it is right now. And, and that to me is, is, is so incredibly fascinating. It's one of the most fascinating parts of the history of epidemiology to me. But it's also something that if you asked a random person on the street, if I opened my window and asked them, it would, I, I, I reckon it would be very difficult that they would have a clear understanding of how the disease is rapidly changing. And, and you know, I think and I, and I wonder what you might have to say about that is how, how do you see epidemiology and where it, it maybe has succeeded in in some ways and then failed in in the communication aspect of of the science well epidemiology is so many different things that that is i think a huge issue here and i um can certainly speak from the from the perspective of the uk is that epidemiology or the epidemiological discourse yeah or lack of a better word around COVID-19 has been completely um, dominated by, by infectious disease modelers. Yeah. And that is a very particular and very specific angle on, on, on what epidemiology is and what, what, um, what the understanding of the disease is. And as I hinted at in the, in the earlier, is, is kind of like looking at the history of what modelers have done throughout this pandemic. It's not self-explanatory why we're listening to the modelers it's not like they did some great forecasting you know? <laughs> yeah. it's really not the case it's not the case that the uk on the basis of modeling advice has done really well you know and so but still we we seem to have this kind of like level of of an understanding where where we seem to give certain authority to some aspect of epidemiology infectious disease modeling mathematical physical laws, there's a lot of uh, um, um, data science you know, that can be related to, that fits also really well into data-driven future rhetoric and whatever. And we really don't like to listen to social epidemiologists while going to the epidemic. They're brilliant. They say brilliant stuff. They have great audience on Twitter sometimes, but they are not the kind of authority that governs this discourse. I mean, the the situation that I think found, I found the, like, it was absolutely shocking to see this Freedom Day rhetoric based on some model projections about how this uh, situation of creating basically a, a free running Delta variant in the United Kingdom, yeah, or in England predominantly, but a 
effectively in the United Kingdom, um, is supposed to prevent a fall spike. Yeah? That was the kind of like modeling argument. This is, we're doing this now so we don't get the fall spike because the fall spike is at risk to have also a flu pandemic on the back, which might then lead to kind of like over uh, um, the, the, the hospitals breaking down on lack of capacity and so on and so on. But at the same time, making this experiment was so clearly an experiment that sacrificed the position of people who are shielding, that sacrificed the position who cannot get the vaccine, who are vulnerable to this pandemic. And it opened up the can of worms that you just hinted at of kind of what the Delta variant actually does. Yeah? And to run an experiment on that level is, is just absolutely insane to see. And I was really shocked by that and really quite this this distort by that and and wonder how that will play out because I think the story is not over. I yeah? mm. don't want to create any doomsday scenarios and at the moment everything looks good. Yeah? It looks quite well, but we're not at the end of this. We're not like, for a long time. And then if you zoom out to the global perspective, the UK story is laughable island story. Yeah? That's right. Ah, um, that's something that, yeah. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll come back to this question of the global epidemiology of COVID because I think, you know, that's one that I've been l trying to scream to anybody who will listen to me and saying from the outset, uh, and in, in particular, you know, when, when, when vaccines in Western Europe and in North America um, and in some other countries became fairly widely available, even though like I mentioned at the outset of the program today, we're still looking at about 50%. Um, in most of those countries where you can walk into a, a, you know, a, a CVS in, in the U.S. and get vaccinated within a couple hours, um, they're that readily available. Um, and yet globally, there are more countries than, there, than that situation exists where, where you can't get a vaccine. It, they're inaccessible. Right. And, and that, too, will be the story of, of COVID-19 when we come to, to write it. It's the story that people are experiencing in real time today. Um, but I want to come back to that sort of I think that's tied to like some big discourses in epidemiology of what what's what's the difference that I always teach like intro public health students about of like what's the difference between a pandemic and endemic and an epidemic disease and and what are the stakes for calling something each one of those. And what we're seeing right now is people still calling this a pandemic when, when frankly, this is an endemic disease throughout the world right now that continues to change, that can spike up to epidemic levels of which it is in different parts of the world. Um, and it's still maybe being, it's been being mislabeled maybe. Um, but I wanna return to something that you mentioned uh, earlier in, in this question um, about epidemiology having too many parts. Um, to, to, to phrase that in a, a, a clumsier way than, than you did. And I wondered if you could talk about um, why that is, because I, I think it's absolutely spot on. And, and you see it in um, academic divisions of epidemiology. Um, you know, in, in the late 19th century, the period that, that for my last book I focused on, the folks practicing epidemiology in the US and the UK, they were field epidemiologists. You know, they were doing on the ground field investigations. By the 1930s, the field of epidemiology in Western Europe and in North America started to look really different. Um, and by the 1950s, it frankly looks very different. 
Um, and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit. I, we, I, we could talk another hour about that whole historical transition in the 20th century, but, but this is really the focus for this big project that you're working on. And I wondered if you could talk about the splintering of epidemiology in the 20th century and how that maybe helps us to explain where we are right now to where the, the social epidemiologists are maybe wringing their hands in the air and not being listened to. And, and some of the modelers are, are being instrumental for government decisions in real time. Um, all the while, I think some, some politicians are taking advantage of this. Um, and, and I think of my own state governor who just basically throws his hand up in the air and he says, I'm not gonna mandate anything because the science is unclear, because the scientists disagree with one another. And, and, and that's not unique to COVID and COVID politics and COVID science, um, but it is something we're seeing. And I think, I think your work has a lot to tell us about that with regards to COVID epidemiology, because what we even call the field of epidemiology today is not a singular unified thing. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's really complicated and has a complicated history. So I wonder if you could you know, you, you just, just maybe do some highlights on, on, on this transition. Um, I, I, I happily do that. The, um, I think I would, I would highlight three things. Like the first is, is a kind of, it's, it's a question that, that I've, been, I've been wondering about a lot is like, where does modeling begin? Like, and when does modeling begin and why? Historians, yeah, let's ask the why question. That, so, and, and part of an incom, like an incomplete answer at this stage. And I hope in a few years time, I can give you a much more foundational and answer also based in good old evidence. Yeah? But at the moment, like a hunch that I have and something that I've been following up in, in like looking through the really like the, the, the archives and the, the, the materials of, those early modelers in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, that's Ronald Ross in, in the UK. And, um, um, but I've looked particularly at Wade Hampton Frost and um, Laurel Reed in the US. Is this kind of um, a deep dissatisfaction with the field of epidemiology as one that is concerned with causes. Yeah. And maybe that leads us back to this idea of origin. And, and I think... The, the, the question that they raise again and again is that, that like there's too many parts in epidemiology, just as you said it like now, they said it's in the 1920s. And the problem is they don't really speak to each other. There are some people who make epidemiology, they don't even call themselves epidemiologists, but they're bacteriologists. Yeah. And they say like, when we want to understand the waxing and waning of epidemic phenomena, all we need to focus on is the differing set of virulence in bacteria cultures. Yeah. So viruses weren't even, weren't really on the, on the, on the, on the uh, horizon yet, you know, as epistemologically speaking, but bacteria. So they would just said, if we want to understand why epidemics happen, we need to understand why some bacteria are stronger than others. You know? Then you have the sanitarian epidemiologists who say like, that's, that's not really relevant. All we need to understand is the kind of situations that people live in, the kind of squalor, the kind of conditions in certain life that allows people to be more infected, more, more transparent, more, more uh, affect, more exposed to certain factors that might drive an epidemic. That doesn't need to be a pathogen. You know? It can also be secondary factors like a particular humid environment that leads to a certain differentiation in, in the way that kind of like... So they would say that we need to 
focus on the environment. And that's kind of like the origin story, a bit of social epidemiology, but not fully. There's more to say about that. And then we had the third group, which were, which were the eugenicists. Yeah? And they were answering epidemiological questions by saying, it's not the bacteria, it's not the environment, it's all about the populations. We need to understand which populations are more vulnerable and that there are certain parts of populations that are, that are more robust against epidemics than others. Yeah? And all of them believed to be right. And all of them were kind of like backed up by their own circles of intellectual uh, um, and institutional support. Yeah? And then modeling comes along almost as a way of to say, like, let's do away with all of this yeah? and say, like, we only look at the kind of like dynamics of a disease by thinking that all of these factors are inter, um, they're all, all kind of like interdependent on each other. Yeah. The virulence of a bacteria can be a function of the environment and can be a function of a certain host response. The host response can be a function of the environment as well as of the, of the, of the response to, to, to a virus or a bacteria and so on and so on. Yeah. And I think this is really an important paradigm shift in epidemiology. Yeah. Very careful with that term, but it's a, important shift of thinking, a way of seeing epidemics where suddenly kind of like the questions of cause drastically moves into the background. And that's the kind of thing that modeling drives on for a long, long time. But interestingly, almost only as a pedagogical instrument in epidemiology. Modeling, particularly by those who did the first models and modeling, were not supposed to answer real world questions. We're not supposed to stop certain treatments. They were helpful tools to understand the dynamics, to then think about vantage points for intervention. Like, if you want to introduce a vaccine, you need to have that kind of understanding of how the dynamic of an epidemic could work. And, stuff, you know? and then, the other point I would highlight is that the mid-20th century, what happens, what I think is really interesting, but um, um, is, is that, that, that you develop a kind of sense of how, um, these tools developed for infectious disease can be applied to a much larger picture, you know? a much larger picture. And really what we have done in the, since the 1930s, kind of interrupted by the war and the kind of resurgence of infectious disease questions. But after the war in, in, in European and American epidemiology, the, the, the focus moves on to chronic diseases. You know? or what later becomes framed as chronic diseases. And I think that's a question where I would love to see a lot more scholarship focused on, and certainly something I need to work on myself a lot more, is kind of what happens to all those infectious disease epidemiologists suddenly moving into heart disease, suddenly moving into smoking, suddenly moving into cancer epidemiology, suddenly moving into, into questions of lifestyle disease, or even into, and that happens from the 1950s and 60s onwards, partly, I think, supported by cybernetics and stuff, thinking about how can we use epidemiology to explain the distribution of ideas? Yeah? How can yeah. we use epidemiology to, to explain the distribution of violence and things like that? And then it becomes really messy and in all kinds of ways really mixed up with a lot of questions. And that's partly why, to bring it back together, I um, use this word epidemic as a frame to to kind of like describe the research that this project is, is supposed to do because it is this like throughout the 20th century what makes for an epidemic phenomenon you know, is really really not just a moving target but really like an exploding concept that becomes almost ubiquitous you know? so 
and epidemic is 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 is, is this quite curious occurrence that that epidemic used to be a quite well used noun in the English language hmm. to describe the epidemic, like they do in German and in French. Yeah? It's the epidemie or l'epidemie, yeah? um, and it's the epidemic. But the this noun has disappeared in the English language, yeah? and I think there's something to be said about that development of a of a science of epidemiology interested in certain attributes and in certain dynamics of the epidemic, but moving away from the object yeah, that used to be the epidemic, moving away from the disease narrative, from the disease biography, seeking to develop tools that apply to more than one disease, more than one epidemic phenomenon. And that's where then questions today need to be asked on like the intersections between epidemiological modeling and economic modeling and yeah. you know, things like that. And we've seen some uh, feuds between those two fields in the in the last year too. Um, so that's, that, that's been interesting. Would you say that, you know, you know, by, by 1950, we know that in, in the U S and in Western Europe, the leading causes of death are heart disease and cancer, um, by, by the turn, by the mid 20th century, drastically different from where they were in, in 1900. Um, would you say then with, with how epidemiology by the mid 20th century turns to chronic and lifestyle diseases and turns towards modeling as the chief kind of tool for understanding those disease experiences would you say that then that 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 discourse change as you say right that paradigm shift that that leads epidemiology in the second half of the 20th century you know leading up to not just the the pandemic moment of covid but but i would say we need to take a, a longer arc there and talk about the whole re-emerging and emerging infectious diseases phenomenon of the early 20th century with zika and ebola and a whole host of other in, uh, infectious diseases that epidemiology sort of hitches its wagon to chronic disease epidemiology and modeling in the second half of the 20th century and then by the early 20th century we see these infectious disease and, and new infectious disease events that then epidemiology is scrambling to to understand because their their chief chief modus of operandi is 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 something that two generations of them had been doing with modeling for chronic diseases. Is that you know what are your thoughts on that sort of equation? It's it's it. I mean, it, it it resonates with that with that kind of also standard narrative from 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 I don't know I used it myself in, in lecturing the history of of pandemics and epidemics. It's kind of you have this the the therapeutic revolution. You have a kind of a certain certain drive from the beginning of the 20th century that leads to this kind of modern hubris. You know? So like the world of infectious disease is the world of the past, and we're now living in the world of beyond infectious disease, and even even. As going as far as the epidemiological transition, this idea that on the back of the disappearance of infectious disease, chronic conditions have come to the foreground. There are statistical things that you can do to show that really nicely and, and to then also show that they are really misleading in many ways. But I think we need to revisit that narrative 
really carefully. And 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 I think there's there's some fantastic work already going on by lots of brilliant people in, in, in our field. Like looking at infectious disease epidemiology was there in the 60s and it was there yep. in the 70s. Yeah, it was it was very much alive and kicking, and it was a huge um field that might not have had the same cloud um, as it had as a kind of like innovative cutting edge science in the beginning of the 20th century, if it ever had that. Yeah. Don't really it's so questionable. Things. Yeah. Yeah. But but it certainly is something that that was practiced and was conducted. And it was not just kind of like that suddenly when when AIDS came along, yeah, which is often portrayed as this first shock of the return of infectious disease in a world where there wasn't supposed to be anymore. Yeah. yeah? Um, but it became very clear clear on on the back of AIDS and throughout the development of AIDS that that AIDS is by far not the only infectious disease that is that is that is ravaging humankind yeah? mm. across the globe. And then as soon again, I guess it gets us back to the question of the global perspective. Yeah? Yeah. As soon as you open the global perspective, you see that there is a whole different set of questions to be asked about malaria, about yeah? Uh, and then later you have the re-emerging infectious diseases of, of Zika and and so on. But I think there is still something to be said about epidemiology as a field that is somehow lost in a in a in a in a kind of in a self-conception of being both too broad and too specific. Hmm. And that there's there's a paper out there of someone who looked at all the different um definitions of epidemiology since the 1970s in textbooks yeah and looking through that and and def and, and seeing that there's there's this tendency going towards the self-definition and self-conceptions of being just a set of methods and tools yeah it's it's just a secondary science in many ways yeah like it's just something that is used to to deal with things that are is deeply connected and based on other fields but at the same time it's also a field that claims the authority to define how to think about an epidemic and and how to frame things as epidemic as endemic epidemic and pandemic yeah and so there's there's a lot to unpack i think in that kind of tension between self conception as a very very um practical secondary kind of science and at the same time a self conception as a science that is authorit authoritative yeah. And and I think, there, you know, there's something else that you got me thinking about here, too. And and, and I, I, I completely agree that I think this big narrative about infectious disease specialists and, and, and infectious disease epidemiologists disappearing is, is a myth, part of the, the history of, of public health um, in the second half of the 20th century. But I do think there's a question that that we need to look at. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if you're looking at it in your project, um, which is. There is something that does happen, though, in in public health in Europe and in 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 Western Western Europe and North America, whereby those infectious disease epidemiologists they don't get turned to as much in real time during disaster events like epidemics or pandemics to make real time policy decisions, and and and, and I wonder if that's because, as you mentioned the modeling that becomes so prevalent in epidemiology and in other epidemiological circles, that maybe was originally meant to be uh, more academic exercises, um, not on the ground emergency exercises. And, and, and they became tools modeling did. And we, we're seeing it right now 
um, with COVID where the, the modelers are being asked to help make real-time decisions when maybe that's not the best use of what that science can do. Um, because, you know, in the late 19th century, the kind of epidemiologists that I've studied, they were clear that the field epidemiology of, of ferreting out cases during an epidemic was there to make real-time policy decisions during a disaster, during an epidemic, to try to make positive change in a community. And, and, and I think a lot of people want epidemiology to do that today. But but there's this this, you know, what we what I might describe as a kind of identity crisis in epidemiology. That's part of this very, very complicated, twisting history that you're exploring that that is that leads us up to this moment, this natural disaster, when I think a lot of politicians, a lot of lawmakers, a lot of public health uh, departments, they don't know what epidemiology to turn to. And and exactly. that to me is 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 utterly fascinating, but still critically important for for honestly saving everyday lives during this pandemic. There was there was a, a I think it was a, a tweet by an epidemiologist not too long ago, someone asking like that it is an observation that throughout this pandemic a lot of people have called themselves epidemiologists who don't have epidemiological training or have contributed to epidemiological journals, articles, and make epidemiological arguments who don't have epidemiological training. And this person was asking, yeah, are there other fields out there where that's the same? Yeah. And it got me thinking. And it's like, like I, I can't come up with many yeah, where, where, where you have that kind of um, um, flexibility, but also that, that kind of where, where the availability of that label seems to be so open. Yeah? And so kind of a, But at the same time, that phenomena is paired with speaking to infectious disease modeler who would absolutely and wholeheartedly say they are not epidemiologists and they don't want to, don't want to be understood as epidemiologists because epidemiologists care about things that they are don't really interested in. You know? And they have a different tool set, they would argue. Absolutely. A totally different tool set. And so, but in a way, it's kind of something that is, that is keep happening to epidemiology. And I think that's, also something that you you draw out in your book really well like that that kind of who defines themselves as an epidemiologist is constantly contested and in this field often kind of like part of huge ongoing quarrels about who can actually determine the shape of this field the future of this field and at the same time uh, um influencing um, influencing government decision influencing policy and also establishing policy as something that is integral part of epidemiology as the kind of science of public health yeah, or yeah, as I mean, the witchcraft of public health as yeah as i mean that's what the epidemiologists have long wanted to call themselves is the science of public health um and i think what we're what we're seeing is like one that that's always been rhetorical but two during during pandemic moments and epidemic moments that are crisis moments and natural disasters That, that we do, I think, turn to epidemiology. We turn to epidemiology to an epidemiologist to answer or, or questions that everyday people have about where did this thing begin? Where, did, where, where is this thing going to go? Um, and, and, and I think like, that's a kind of way in which that will never stop. And, and yet, the way the epidemiologists as a field of practitioners deal with those questions is one that has never remained constant um, either. So um, 
This is really, really fascinating to me. I want to ask you one last question because I feel like you and I could go on on this um, for a very long time. We will. We will in various forums and forms. Um, but I want to ask you one last question um, that is very speculative and very unfair, but I want to ask it anyway. Where do you um, where do you see the next six months going? What what should we expect in the next six months? Um, not as a not as an epidemiologist yourself, but but just as a as an observer and participant in in this pandemic. I certainly wouldn't call myself an epidemiologist unless unless you would think of epidemiology as also something that you can apply to the distribution of knowledge or something. But I think that also where it loses its sense. But that's a different point. Um, prediction. I, I quite like predictions. I mean, I'm, I, I think there's with certainty, I would say this pandemic is not over anytime soon. And, um, as you hinted above, uh, as you hinted at before, there is, um, not above before, uh, there is, there is certainly the question of it becoming endemic. Um, there are, already circulating variants that are not as well covered by the vaccines as the Delta variant, as the last kind of variant that we know or that we have experienced is. That's on the one hand concerning, on the other hand, it's kind of inevitable. I think a lot of the infrastructures that we have seen build up over the last few years, last two years or last one and a half years will stay. I always wonder when my local library will be turned back into a local library. Currently, it's the local testing center. Yeah. Wow. And I, I often feel like that local testing center will probably stay yeah? and probably stay for quite a long time. Although I think I just saw the headline today that Germany will stop free testing in October, yeah? which is interesting. I didn't expect that. But I would say testing will stay around. We'll probably see another few rounds of vaccination drives with maybe different vaccinations at some point. Maybe we'll see the development of it become a childhood disease. I think there's a lot of interesting chatter around that. Yeah? And it will join the ranks of measles and others with a childhood vaccination program rather than a, a kind of very costly things that we do now. Maybe it will slowly disappear. Yeah? So, and slowly make space for another pandemic uh, because now we're certainly in the frame for that. But in any case, what I think is really interesting and what I would be very, where, where I'm very uncertain is, is to kind of to see the fate of the mask. You know? And I really like what um, my esteemed colleague Christos recently wrote on, on masks in, a, in, in, in Scotland. And um, to say like there is, there is, a, there is, and I see this here in the local infrastructures in Leith as well. There's a small coffee shop where I often go and get my coffee and they've turned their whole indoor setting into a kind of at the door you know, kind of thing. And they don't feel they want to change that because they make a lot more money like that. Right now. Interesting. I'm happy to go on like that, but it's still until this day, you know, custom that the long line of people you know, who wait for their coffee We'll put a mask on before picking up their coffee. You know? sure. It hasn't never been part of any regulation. It's all outside, inside interaction. You know? But it has become in some part of our societies a gesture of solidarity and a gesture of care and a gesture mm. of community. You know? Yeah. 
And that's a really valuable gesture. You know? yeah. And something I really find just as Christos described in this piece, like really heartening. You know? and, uh, and something that I hope we can maintain a kind of like, yeah, an enculturation of these institutions like the mask as something that becomes part of our repertoire of demonstrating our care for each other. Yeah, I, I um, that hits home for me particularly hard, and and I'll, we'll end on on this note. Um, you know, I'm starting the fall semester of my university in a state where my university officials are not legally allowed because of our governor's uh, proviso to mandate masks or vaccine. And so, all that our university president can do is strongly recommend the wearing of masks and the getting of vaccines. And we've just been encouraged as faculty members to go into classes that we can't mandate any vaccines or masks to just plead with students. All I have is the ability to walk in in the first day and, and to do exactly what, what Christos wrote about is to just plead to your humanity. And, and, and you know, it, it's going to be in some ways, at least for me and people like me, um, a new phase in the pandemic where I, I have to go out to do my job to talk about the history of pandemics, which is some meta level stuff that's difficult to deal with for me. Um, and, and, and my central tool is just to plead on the humanity of the people around me. And, 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 and what will ensue with that is something that uh, my plan is to journal is to keep track of it because it, it, it's, it's utterly important and it will some ways come to define my own experience of, of living through this pandemic moment. And it's, it's, I mean, it's awful to be in that situation. Just like my, my sympathy is like, like, I mean, our university hasn't been, hasn't been fantastic, but, but I mean, following Scottish governance guidance, the mask will in, will stay um, as an indoor, as an indoor uh, provisor, at least for the time around. But, but again, I think it will be really interesting to see how those politics play out once they're not anymore mandated. And yeah. They might play out also in very ugly ways, you know? yeah. and I think that that I'm also being I'm very aware of. And let's see. Yeah. Okay. Well, my guest today was Lucas Engelman. Thank you so much um, for this incredible discussion of epidemiology, epidemics. Um, uh, I uh, look forward to seeing more of your work with the Epidemi Project. Please follow him on Twitter. Please look at the amazing. Um, biography of sources and the history of uh, epidemiology that he and his team have produced. It's, it's truly incredible and in the, in the, in the best collection of the history of epidemiology that I've ever seen. So um, thank you so much. Please join me tomorrow for COVID calls at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, where I will be speaking with Dr. Jim Downs. Thanks, Lucas.